The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast series created by Mercedes Lackey and Steve Lippin. Introduction, written by Mercedes Lackey, read by Veronica Jaguer. The invasion was delivered by Overnight Express. Oh, I know there were people who claim they saw giant spaceships hovering over all the cities of the world, but these are the same people who put tinfoil hats on their heads to stop the FBI from taking over their minds, when everyone in the know will tell you that the tinfoil hats only amplify the thought-controlling waves. I kid, I kid. But not about the invasion coming via delivery truck. That's a fact. It's also a fact that the foundations were laid back around 1935. That was when the first metahumans, what most folks now call superheroes and supervillains, first started showing up. The Nazis had them first. Ubermenschen. Vaterland was the very first, and his sidekick, Hitlerjungen. We all assumed it was some sort of Nazi super-science at work, and, honestly, nobody thought they were anything but propaganda blow-ups until the Blitzkrieg started pounding across Europe. And there were more of these Ubermenschen, and all by themselves they were entire battalions and tank corps. For a while they had it all their own way, too. Until Spitfire. It was during the Battle of Britain, and the waves of fighter-bombers were being led by a guy who had reflexes like nobody's business and hardly needed a plane at all. The Black Baron. Bullets literally bounced off this guy. His plane was a frame with machine guns and an engine, and all the armoring was around the engine. He could pull maneuvers that would have sent anyone else into full blackout. He was, like all the Ubermenschen, a one-man fighter squadron, and he was cutting the RAF down at the coastline. Including Lieutenant Commander Nigel Patterson, whose plane disintegrated around him and burst into flames. Except, Nige didn't die. Something happened to him in the instant it should have. Out of the ball of flame burst a streak of flame, a man on fire, a flying man on fire, who proceeded to punch holes in every fighter-bomber in that formation with his body, then land on the airframe of the Black Baron's plane, rip the control cables and fuel line out, and punch the Baron in the nose for good measure. The Baron's plane went down. Maybe he could survive bullets, but he couldn't survive a fall from a height that turned him into a red smear on the ground. And Spitfire, the first of the Allied supers, was born. Time after time, again and again, it happened during the war. Nazi, Italian fascist, and Japanese metas would show up and kick butt for a while, and then something would happen on the battlefield, and suddenly they were facing someone that could take them. The supers battled it out one-on-one, -on -one, leaving conventional forces to win or lose the battles. And after the war was over, the supervillains just moved on to crime, which was where Echo came in. Echo organized the old metaheroes from former WW2 vets and recruited new ones, bundling them all into a single organization, complete with uniforms, for the lower ranks anyway, and funded by the eccentric but charismatic son of Nikola Tesla, who actually made his father's dream of broadcast energy work. And for a while, well, things in the world looked a lot like the comic book writers used to picture them. Every city had its Echo HQ, and you'd see the occasional metavillain pulling off something extreme, 
and your local Mach 2 or Mach 3 would take him out, either alone or with a team. And you tried not to be under the falling debris. People got used to it. Couldn't remember a time without Metas, actually. Metas got legislated, with the extreme force laws, forbidding powered heroes from operating against non-powered criminals, except in cases of life or death, and the control officer mandate that required every Meta team operating in a public place to have one Meta whose only job was to protect and save the civilians and, to an extent, their property. Echo built special containment prisons for Meta-villains, and really it was a lot less scary than the threat of the A-bomb, and then the H-bomb. And then... the invasion. Echo's main HQ was in Atlanta. Why Atlanta? Because Yankee Doodle and Dixie Bell got married right after the end of World War II and settled there, and they were the pride of the U.S. Metahuman Corps. Simple enough. Atlanta was pretty central, pretty modern, and had access to about anything, but was not Washington, D.C. or New York City, and Alex Tesla wanted to keep Echo away from the U.S. centers of politics. Atlanta seemed like the best option, since Yankee and Bell didn't want to move. And the day of the invasion was like any other day, except in Atlanta, where the NBA All-Star Game had turned the city into one big traffic jam. Just like every other year. Until cargo containers and semi-trailers all over the city suddenly began bursting open, disgorging swastika-painted metatroops in powered armor and Nazi war machines, and they began mowing civilians down like a John Deere harvester going through a wheat field. Same thing was happening all over the world, but it was especially horrendous in Atlanta. When the screaming and dying stopped, there was a mountain of dead, civilians and heroes alike. The world probably lost about two-thirds of the existing metahumans that day. Maybe more. And when people started examining the Nazi bodies, they got a shock. Some of them weren't human. Not even metahuman. We had been invaded, and Echo's war to save the world suddenly got a whole lot grimmer. And that's where my part of the story comes in. Who am I? Victoria Victrix Nodge, at your service. Call sign Vicky V. Magician, metahuman, romance writer, and hero. And this is how, from my perspective, it all began. Prologue by Steve Lippy. Read by Adam Higgins. When the suntan youths hauled Eisenfaust out of the waters of the Atlantic Ocean onto the deck of their yacht, he was too waterlogged and exhausted to note their curious haircuts, immodest bathing attire, or tattoos. He had, after all, been fighting for his life before crossing an unexplainable portal back into what appeared to be the planet Earth. He'd regained his bearings, chosen a direction, and started swimming. That was five days ago. The first night, he oriented himself by the night sky. It wasn't so different from the sky when he and his Fraulein, Valkyrie, led their Uberluftwaffen against the Allied Aces in a final, desperate battle. The German army had overextended itself in Russia. Allied forces regained France and Belgium and set their sights on the fatherland. There was nothing to be gained by fighting over a few islands in the Atlantic besides honor, 
which he was willing to die for. Dude, check it out, a youth said in English. Stretching out on his back, Eisenfaust stared at the ruthless blue sky and gulped in the air. A radio belched out a grating, rhythmic style of music he'd never heard. Oh my god, the boy's girlfriend said. She wore a bikini that would have been the admiration of his lonely, isolated pilots. It left little to the imagination. That's like totally a swastika. Totally, the boy agreed. He's some sort of white supremacist or something. Maybe he fell off a cruise ship, a negro boy suggested. He didn't behave with the deference of a servant. He did, however, hold a bottle with something Eisenfaust needed badly. Fossa, he gasped. Yo, what's up? The blonde youth responded. He seems friendly. He asked for water, fool, the negro said, surprising Eisenfaust. He stooped to put his bottle in Eisenfaust's hand. Despite the fact that it was tainted by a lesser race, Eisenfaust drank eagerly. Donka, he said at last. He recalled his English. Thank you. No problem. Are you hurt? The negro appeared to be the more alert of his white friends. Eisenfaust wasn't in a position to quibble about his rescuers. Nine, just tired and hungry. The girl left them for a moment and returned with a plastic bag full of corn chips. He crunched them with tremendous concentration. His metahuman body could tolerate far more punishment than a normal man's. But starvation was starvation. Get him something more substantial than that, the negro said, annoyed. Hey, man, what happened to you? You really go overboard from a cruise ship? A plane, he said, thinking it would be a simpler explanation than the inhuman horrors he'd seen. I am in the Atlantic Ocean, yeah? Yeah, man, just out from Bermuda. He exchanged look with his friends. Anyone else on that plane? Eisenfaust thought of the hasty embrace he and Valkyrie shared before they and the surviving allied aces threw themselves into the glowing portals. None of them had splashed into the ocean near him. Valkyrie and the aces were ubermenschen like Eisenfaust, but a metahuman could drown as easily as a human. I don't think they survived. Damn. The negro grimaced, an expression of genuine sympathy. I'm going to go radio this in. Get him into some dry clothes and out of that... uniform. Nine! Eisenfaust blurted. At their startled expression, he softened his voice. I am sorry. No one touches the uniform of an officer of the Reich. At the mention of the Empire, their faces darkened. He was certainly in enemy hands. I shall undress myself. Whoa, the blonde boy said. You're like... Serious. Use the bathroom, the negro said, his sympathy gone. He turned his back. Eisenfaust found the tiny toilet, no larger than a closet with a standing shower. He stripped and washed the brine off his body. His wounds from the claws of the stalkers pulsed, pink and infected. He'd need medical attention soon. A magazine caught his attention. Rolling Stone, it was called and featured a nude woman concealing her breast with artful placement of her pink-colored hair. American pornography, he assumed. But 
Then an impulse struck him. He reached for it and looked for a date under the logo. March 2004. Nearly sixty years after the green light enveloped his Uber-Luftwaffe plane in the Allied aces over Bermuda. Heinrich Eisenhower, known to the battlegrounds and skies of World War II as Eisenfaust, the Iron Fist, succumbed to his ordeal at last and fainted. Eisenfaust hunkered in the shadows of an alleyway aside a bar. At the end of the block, a white wall terminated the nighttime darkness like a false horizon. A brightly lit tower, with windows as slender as a man's arm, presided over the scene. The Echo Security Facility. One of the most heavily guarded buildings in the United States of America. He'd survived the plane crash. As Germany's greatest pilot, he knew how to ditch a plane. But he hadn't counted on the flimsiness of the futuristic craft. Strange to think that sixty years after his disappearance, the aviation industry would build planes less sturdy than the fighters he'd flown over the European and Atlantic theaters. His broken arm throbbed at the memory of slamming the plane into a swamp on the outskirts of the American city Atlanta. Better than the fate his pursuers had encountered in the Andes. Technology was secondary to flying. Any proud German of his own Luftwaffe could have outflown the impostors in their clumsy floating balls. He almost wished he was back in the jungle stronghold, just long enough to mock the commandant who had stolen his beautiful Valkyrie from him. Oh, Effie, your betrayal cut deeper than the caricature of our ideals put forth by those madmen. He would not fall prey to the foolishness they preached. Eisenfaust was a soldier, a warrior of the Germanic people. He fought for the fatherland, for his fellow Deutschenlander, for the freedom his people deserved. But this, this was madness. And like his nom de guerre, he would crush it under his fist. But he needed allies, and he needed time to plan. With his right hand, he adjusted his collar and jacket. It exuded a stale odor. He had worn it ever since his rescue in the ocean. Holes had been burned into the fabric, the blood that stained his sleeves was not entirely his own. It was likely that he'd fractured his ankle, but he refused to limp like a weakling. Slowly, he made his way down the dim street to the white wall of the Echo compound. These American Ubermenschen would surely be surprised by the identity of their uninvited guest. The guard at the gate eyed him. The campus is closed, sir. I wish to speak to your commanding officer, Eisenfaust said. Fetch him at once. Uh, right. You'll have to come back tomorrow. We open at 9 a.m. I have no intention of waiting, Eisenfaust scowled at the enlisted man. Your commander, bring him. A second guard stepped out of the booth, wary of the increasing tension in the air. We can't do that, sir. Please step away from the gate. Eisenfaust cursed under his breath. Even the Allied aces had shown him more respect than these flunkies. He pointed at the security tower. That is my destination. If you cannot assist me, step aside. Both guards reached for their sidearms. 
Moving with the inhuman speed that made him Germany's greatest aerial ace, he swatted the guns out of their hands before they could level them in his direction. The two men gasped. To come so far only to face blundering idiots. Fury burned in him. He flattened the first guard with a blow to the chin. I will find him myself, he exclaimed. The second guard knelt to seize his gun. Eisenfaust booted the man in the side, hurling him back into the booth. Silence settled down over the still bodies and the fuming Nazi war hero. With a contemptuous sniff, he kicked the guns aside and walked to the doors of the detention facility. Another guard perked up at his approach. This time he skipped the parlay entirely. He seized the surprised man and dashed him against the wall. His hopes of finding a safe haven here were becoming dashed as well. Infiltration was too easy. He opened the glass door, noting with approval the weight of the doors. The bulletproof glass was two inches thick and obscured the lobby. In wartime, Eisenfaust would never have been so careless, but his goal was not to defeat these men. Stop right there, mister. The speaker was a fine example of American manhood. Tall, wide-shouldered, with square features and a swath of light brown hair. His black echo uniform sported epaulets decorated with the stars and stripes. A thick metal gauntlet on his right hand glowed with plasma energy and was directed at Eisenfaust. The cocky smirk in the American flag reminded Eisenfaust of a man he'd met once, only months before, by his measure of time. Both men had nearly died from the encounter. Guten Nacht, my friend. I am told you have rooms for rent. A score of echo guards with rifles lined up behind the hero. We have plenty of room for metas who smack our people around. Don't make us use force. Good. I was hoping to speak to someone with authority. He drew himself up into a salute. I wish to turn myself in. That was easy. The hero motioned the guards forward, who circled Eisenfaust. Take him in, boys. Watch those hands. Eisenfaust made the connection. You have nothing to fear from me, young man. I am a colleague of your father's. He offered his wrist to be shackled. I doubt that. Pop died over twenty years ago, and I don't think he ever managed to buddy up with a German after the war. A tinge of doubt crossed Eisenfaust's mind. I... I am sorry to hear this. He was a fine warrior. The best I ever faced. Huh? The hero looked at him closely. Now you're messing with me. You can't be a day over thirty. You are correct. In a sense. The shackles clanked as he offered a hand. I am Oberst Heinrich Eisenfaust of the Uberluftwaffen of the Third Reich. He paused, enjoying the look on the young man's face. Your father, Yankee Doodle, knew me as Eisenfaust. The hero looked from Eisenfaust's grin to the hand. Bull, he said at last. He died fighting the Allied Aces in 1945. Your father must have told you about me. Clearly you carry on his legacy. A succession of expressions passed over the American's face so quickly that anyone lacking Eisenfaust's metahuman perception would not have registered anything but a frown. First surprise, then reflection, then the cold, 
strategic calculation of a man used to secrets. His bluff bravado returned in less than a heartbeat. As Yankee pride, yeah, and we're a little too savvy to let some Nazi fetishist with minor metapowers get his rocks off by pretending to be a dead Nazi war criminal. Did you leave Hitler's brain in your pantser out front? Yankee pride backed off as Echo Guard seized Eisenfaust's arms, retching his broken arm. Put him in a holding cell under suicide watch until we can ID this wingnut. The guards began to drag Eisenfaust down the hallway towards the cell block. He called out, Ask your mother, or Liberty Torch, or Workers Champion. They know me. They feared me. Save it for the shrink, Fritz. Yankee Pride stifled a yawn. He tapped at controls on his gauntlet, gesturing oddly at Eisenfaust for a moment. Eisenfaust calmed himself. He should have assumed the Americans would be suspicious of a man claiming to be one of their country's greatest foes. He would overcome their doubts. You're taking me to a cell? he asked a guard. Is it secure? No one's ever gotten out of Echo, the man said with a sneer. That's admirable. Eisenfaust gave the man a prophetic smile. But it's who will try to get in that concerns me. Atlanta Burning by Mercedes Lackey Read by Laura Patterson Victoria Victrix Nage stood in her cozy living room, surrounded by the sandalwood scent of her candles, by the shelves of books and music and movies that she loved, and stared at the closed door of her apartment, gathering her strength and her courage. She was about to do battle as she did about every two weeks, and the fight was going to require every resource she could muster. She checked once again to make sure that her protections were in place, that she was covered from chin to toes with not so much as a millimeter of skin exposed. She clutched her car keys in one hand, wishing they were a sword. Not that having a sword in her hand would make any difference. The battle she faced was inside herself, and she faced it every time she had to leave her apartment. And it wasn't getting any easier for standing there. She took a shuddering breath, felt her throat closing, her heart racing, heard the blood pounding in her ears. A cold sweat started up along her scalp and down her back. Her stomach knotted, and the fear, the terrible, blinding, paralyzing fear spread through her, making her knees weak, her hands shake. But there was no choice. She had to eat. It was time to do the grocery shopping, panic attacks or no panic attacks. Come on, Vic, she heard her cat, her familiar gray malkin, say in her mind. You can do this. Do it for me. I'm out of tuna and the kibbles are almost gone. That did it. That broke the hold for a moment, as gray had probably figured it would. Selfish beast, she said aloud with a shaky laugh. What did you expect? I'm a cat, not Mahatma Gandhi. On the strength of that laugh, she got to the door and opened it. There was no one in the hallway with its worn brown carpet and 20-watt lighting. That made things easier. It was people that triggered her panic attacks, not places. 
She did choose her time and day carefully. It was mid-afternoon, the day of the All-Star game. Those people who were not at the game, or the pre-game parties, or thronging to the venues of the parties that superstars of music and movies were holding, in hopes of getting a glimpse or even an autograph, or attending their own barbecues, or outlining the streets hawking cheesy giant foam hands and sun visors, were at work or at home. No one sane went anywhere on this day of all days. Not unless you could do so without resorting to any major streets or, God forbid, the interstates. Traffic conditions were appalling. The traffic reports said that within a mile of some of the star parties, it was taking an hour to go three blocks, jammed with cars, all going nowhere. The stores would be deserted, especially the grocery stores. Earlier this morning, there would have been a last-minute run on the staples of the day. Beer, hot dogs and buns, beer, ice, beer, soda, which in this part of the world was called Coke, no matter what flavor or brand it was, and beer. Now, disgruntled employees would be bowling in the empty aisles with frozen turkeys for balls. Fortunately, the neighborhood of Peachtree Park would be spared most of the horror of the day. Once it had been a small town on the outskirts of Atlanta, now long since annexed, it retained a lot of the flavor of that town. It was a blue-collar working-class neighborhood, but the workers had, for the most part, long since retired to their 30s-era bungalows. There weren't many families with children here. The schools were notoriously antiquated and run down. There wouldn't be many barbecues here today. The residents were sitting inside to watch the game, sensibly isolated from the heat and the bugs, and especially from the Georgia State bird, the mosquito. There also wouldn't be a great many people in this neighborhood who were ignoring the game. Blue-collar Atlantans took their sports seriously. So the streets should be as deserted as if it were 4 a.m. on a Sunday, which was the time Vicky usually chose to shop for groceries. She made it down the hall to the elevator, an ancient model complete with brass grill inner doors. There was no one there, either. She pushed the button for the first floor, and the old cage shuddered and began its slow descent. There was no one in the lobby. Her panic ebbed further. There was not even anyone checking mail at the bank of cast-iron mailboxes. Her sneaker-shod feet made barely a whisper against the worn-out gray linoleum as she crossed the lobby and let herself out through the front door. The parking lot was full. This was, after all, a 15-story tall apartment building constructed in an era when people took buses and streetcars to work. The parking lot was always full, and those few residents who didn't own a car could command a nice little monthly fee for the use of their assigned space. Vicky's was as far from the building as physically possible, because the super knew that she only moved her little econo box when she absolutely had to. Like today. It was a lovely day. It wouldn't be lovely out in the stadium parking lot for the tailgaters, and even less so on the giant parking lots that were the stretches of interstate near the stadium. It looked as if there wouldn't be much in the way of cloud cover today, and cars would turn into ovens, even with the air conditioning on. And having the air conditioning on would make the motors start to overheat, a vicious cycle Vicky was just as glad she wasn't going to be a part of. Her little light blue nondescript basic mobile was parked under a giant live oak, which could be a nuisance in acorn season, but was nice now, when she could actually get into the thing and hold the steering wheel without using oven mitts. Once in the car, she let out a sigh of relief and waited for the trembling in her arms to stop. The first hurdle was cleared. 
Actually, driving was not a problem, even when there were other cars on the street. It wasn't rational, but her gut regarded the car as a safe little shell, and the panic eased back to jitters as she negotiated the narrow 30s-era streets. Peachtree Park wasn't quite a slum. It wasn't a desirable neighborhood, and it certainly had seen better days, but it wasn't a slum. Cracking and peeling paint, aging roofs, stood in contrast to the immaculate yards. Old arms and legs were up to yard work, but not to ladders. At the border of Peachtree Park in the next neighborhood of Four Corners, things were changing. There was an interstate exit that fed Four Corners. There had been demolition and rebuilding in the 50s, then the 70s, and now again. Here was the chain grocery Vicky made her pilgrimage of fear to whenever the supplies got too low. As she rounded the corner, she prayed that she would find the parking lot empty. It was, and again she breathed a sigh of relief. There was nothing there but five semi-truck trailers. Odd, but... Well, it was the day of the All-Star game, and it was entirely possible the drivers had realized they were never going to get anywhere today and had rendezvoused here to watch the TVs and the cabs and have an impromptu party of their own. This was the least of her worries. In a moment, she would park the car. She would have to get out of the car and walk to the entrance of the grocery. Only a few feet, but there would be people there. People who would look at her the way they had looked at her, avidly, waiting for her to fall, waiting like the hyenas they were, and when she was down, they would leap on her and... Get a grip. This is now, not then. They're just people. People here for groceries, nothing more. But her palms were sweating now, and her short hair was damp with sweat, her mouth was dry, and as she turned off the ignition, her hands and arms were shaking, and she had to force herself to reach for the door handle, then to pop the door open. She was hot and cold by turns, her stomach so knotted that she was getting sick and regretting that cup of coffee and morning toast. One foot on the ground. She wanted to cry. The second. She wanted to die. She stared at the asphalt and goaded herself with a memory of a mostly empty bag of cat food and what Gray would do to revenge himself on her if she got back in the car and went home. And she was just about to put her weight on her feet when... A tremendous metallic crash made her freeze. Maybe most people would have leapt in startlement and whacked their heads against the doorframe, but the panic attacks made her freeze whenever anything unexpected happened. She froze, and she looked up in the direction of the noise. The five tractor trailers had come apart at the seams. That was the sound she'd heard, the walls falling to either side and crashing down onto the pavement. And now she stared at... At first her mind registered only metas. They had to be metahumans. That was all they could be. Metas were common here. In fact, this was why Vicky had moved here in the first place, to join them, when she graduated from St. Rhea's and healed. Except she couldn't. Her crippling panic attacks kept her from doing more than getting the registration papers from Echo, the organization of metahumans. She'd never even filled them out. After all, what good was a metahuman sorceress who couldn't even stop shaking long enough to crumble a pebble? Never mind she was trained to a fare-thee-well as a warrior and a geomancer. Never mind that the white belt she had said to the right eyes that she was a night mage of Underhill. Never mind what she used to be able to do. She couldn't do it now. But people were used to seeing metas, superheroes in the old parlance, zipping around all the time here in Atlanta, in everything from spandex to powered armor. 
Atlanta was the headquarters of Echo, and Metas were as common in the sky as planes, Meta-controlled vehicles more so than taxis. So she looked, and saw powered armor, and thought Metas, and wondered why. Then she saw the swastikas, and the guns, and the five spheroid war machines rising up into the air with a hum that made the fillings in her teeth ache. And her panic attack was replaced by panic of another sort altogether. And the world went white. She didn't remember getting out of her car. She didn't remember running or screaming. But she must have done both, because when she came to herself again, she was cowering behind a dumpster, behind an apartment block, dripping with sweat, throat raw. What did I do? Whatever it was, she'd gotten out of the grocery store lot, without her car, but a moving car might have made her more of a target, not less. What the hell is going on? That was a good damn question. Her teeth began to ache again, and she glanced up reflexively to see one of those shining spheroids floating easily above the level of the rooftops about a block away. It was dotted with baleful orange windows or ports, and the bottom tenth or so glowed the same angry orange. Except for the humming, it looked innocent enough. A heavy chuff-chuff-chuff from behind her made her crouch further down and glance to the rear, as a Black Hawk chopper in National Guard colors moved purposefully towards the sphere. The sight would have reassured a normal civilian, but Vicky was not a normal civilian, and the sight of a National Guard chopper heading towards what was clearly a metahuman guided supercraft made her want to stand up, wave her arms, and scream at them to retreat as fast as they could. But of course, she didn't do that. Of course, she just crouched there like a scared rat, cowering and shaking as it passed overhead. Not, of course, that anyone was going to be looking down, or would pay attention to one lone woman screaming and waving at them if they did. And there was nothing overtly threatening in that serenely floating chromed sphere. Or at least there wasn't, until a dozen segmented metal tentacles whipped out from hidden ports on its sides, like a nest of cobras they struck, half of them seizing the chopper, half impaling it. It exploded in a massive fireball that hurled debris in all directions. Her throat closing with fear and anger, under cover of the smoke and flames, she ran. She wasn't sure where she was when her luck ran out. It wasn't any part of Peachtree Park that much she knew. It must have been four corners. The streets were wider. She could hear the screaming, see the black smoke from the fires on the interstate in the distance. It was at that point when she tried to duck across the street and found herself looking up at the chromed armor of a Nazi meta-trooper, flanked by two more just like him. Vicky was irresistibly reminded of the streamlined diesel locomotives of the 1950s. The power suits were chromed and polished, contoured and tooled to a fairly well. The helmets featured aggressive blast shields covering the eye area, a mouth shield like the grill on a 57 Chevy. Twin, swept-back antennae projected from the helmets, one over each temple. There were extremely stylized designs incised into the chest plates. The armor looked angry, no telling what the people inside the armor were like, but the armor itself was over eight feet tall. There was one not-so-subtle exception to the entire shining chrome theme. That was the black swastika set inside a white circle on a field of red, enameled on the right bicep of every suit of armor. The emblem of Nazi Germany. There were five more closing in behind her. 
As she stared, the part of her brain that had been trained as a field commander, an elven night mage, noted that there was one among the chromed super-soldiers who wore black armor instead of silver. This one had stylized eagle wings on its helmet instead of antennae. Or maybe these were still antennae, just decorative as well as functional. If the other armor looked angry, this looked lethal. SS, said her brain. Their SS. The SS wore black uniforms. As she stood there, numb, frozen, waiting to die, a rabbit caught in a circle of wolves, she almost closed her eyes so she wouldn't see it coming. But she didn't. So she did see the panicking, crying ribbon of children that streamed in between two of the buildings and stopped, the kids stumbling to a halt, clutching each other and falling silent as they realized that they were trapped. And a decade and more of training, practice, discipline, coupled with a rage that overcame the fear, smashed down onto her paralysis and took over. "'You freaking bastards!' she shrieked as the power rose up into her, from the earth her mother, into her hands, building as quick as thought into the weapons she had wielded for most of her life. The earth rose up in answer. When the Tuatha da Danan fought, it was said, the earth itself ran like water and crested like the ocean waves. That power was Vicky's, the skill, knowledge, and the magic of the geomancer. The earth thrust upwards in a wave between the Nazi troopers and the children, a wall of broken asphalt and dirt and stone that caught and absorbed the terrible power of their arm cannons. Nor was that all, for like the wave, it crested and crashed down on them, half burying them in debris. And a second wave began as they struggled to their feet. The earth's magic power flooded through Vicky in a molten torrent, and she stood there with her arms outstretched to it, surrounded by a golden glow. "'Run!' she screamed to the children, intercepting a second, more scattered barrage of blue-white energy with her earth wave. "'Run, you little rats!' And she sent a secondary wave, bulging the asphalt to shove them on their way. They ran. As the Nazis staggered to their feet again, this time turning their attention towards her, exclusively. Energy beams concussed the pavement to either side of her as she changed her tactics, calling on the earth to heave up right under their feet, knocking them down and back. Can't aim if you can't stand. But she hadn't forgotten the spheres. She began backing away from the Nazis, alternating upheavals with earth waves, one eye on the sky, because these guys were going to call for help eventually. Where the hell is Echo? Where are the Metas? she thought frantically. But she knew where they were. She could see the black smoke of fires, hear the explosions, and in the distance, the screaming. The metahumans of Echo were all around her, doing what she was doing. No one was coming to save her. But there, she was wrong. As the sweat of exertion and fear ran into her eyes and clumped her hair, as she called on the earth to deflect and overset, as she began to run low on personal stamina and her control over the magic began to fade, someone, several someones, came to save her. She heard the sound of a truck motor behind her, incredulously because it was coming towards her, towards the Nazis. She heard it skid to a halt with screaming tires and shrieking brakes and the stench of overheated metal. She heard people pile out of it, and then she heard the barrage of gunfire. They're nuts, she thought incredulously. They can't! And the knee joint of the Nazi nearest her, only just steadying himself and bracing to fire at her again, disintegrated. He toppled over. Another barrage erupted, and the knee joint of another trooper vanished in fire concentrated with pinpoint accuracy, as only a sniper could muster. But the remaining troopers aimed, and Vicky slammed into them with another upthrust of broken concrete and dirt. 
Keep it up, miss, came a voice from behind, cracking with strain. This time, the barrage took out the elbow joint of the first target, the bottom half of the arm, the half with the energy cannon in it, flailed uselessly. Vicky backed up one slow step at a time until she fell in with the line of Atlanta SWAT cops that the armored vehicle had disgorged. By the time she reached them, they had fallen into rhythm, she and they. Where they missed the joints, bullets pinged and whined away, but where they hit the joints, that was the vulnerable spot. Vicky kept the active Nazis off their feet while the SWAT team concentrated rendering one Nazi helpless at a time. When one went down for good, all four limbs rendered useless, she buried him. That might not kill them, but maybe they'd bleed to death or their oxygen would give out, or a Mach 2 or 3 would show up to give them the coup de grace. No one was going to be able to drive this street without heavy construction work on it, though. Then again, if they couldn't beat these guys, that would hardly matter. This, she panted, this is frickin' brilliant. One of the snipers next to her grunted, lost six SWAT teams working it out. Six? Six? Atlanta PD didn't lose more than one SWAT member over the course of a year, and they'd lost six teams? Atlanta SWAT had Echo Mach 1s on it. How many of these things were there? And if this is what was tearing up a blue-collar neighborhood, what was going after the important targets? What was going after Echo HQ? Suddenly a shadow fell over them, and one of the SWAT guys in the process of reloading looked up. Merry frickin' mother of God. Vicky whirled. All that came out of her throat was a whimper. It was one of the spheres, bristling with tentacles, bearing down on them with horrible slowness. Half the SWAT team turned and started firing on it, but there were no vulnerable places on this thing, not to bullets anyway. They were dead. She heard energy cannon behind her start to ramp up. She saw ports for more cannon open on the side of the sphere. And then... I bring you fire and the sword. The voice was a trumpet call from above, a clarion cry that both elated and terrified filled the ears and the soul both, and suddenly the sky was awash with flames. Vicky had seen metas before, lots of metas, Mach 3s, and even once, at a distance, when she was with her parents, one of the near-legendary Mach 4s, Amphitrite, who might or might not have been the real, genuine goddess, the wife of Neptune of myth. This was no meta-human. She hovered in the midst of fire, was clothed in fire, bore a flaming sword in one hand and a flaming spear in the other. Her hair was living flames, and her wings, easily thirty feet across, blazed like those of the phoenix. There was a reason why, in the truly old texts, the first thing out of an angel's mouth when it manifested were the words, Fear not. It was because the first sight of an angel should turn your knees to jelly and your guts to water and throw you down onto your face with the sheer glory-induced terror of the experience. Half the SWAT team did just that. Vicky would have, but terror locked all her limbs and she couldn't have moved now. All she could do was look. Look on the face of a creature that lived to look fearlessly into the face of God. The angelic warrior darted straight up, avoiding all the grasping tentacles as easily as if they were waving blades of grass. She alighted on the top of the sphere, paused for a heartbeat, then drove the point home, slamming the spear down until her fist hit the top of the sphere with a hollow boom. For a moment, nothing happened. Then the sphere started to wobble, then kite sideways. The tentacles thrashed and tangling, two hanging limply. 
The angel leapt off as the sphere struggled to rise but canted over, reeling drunkenly over the housetops until it was obscured by trees. The angel engaged the first of the two remaining Nazis, flinging up her hand as she passed it. A wash of flame engulfed the visor. She spun in an impossible move backwards, slashing that blade of fire through both knee joints of the second without even looking at what she was doing, ending up on one knee, head bowed. Both Nazis crumpled and fell over, backwards into the mounds of dirt and rocks and torn-up asphalt left by Vicky's magic. A crystalline sphere of silence surrounded them. Outside that sphere, sirens and car alarms wailed, distant screaming, the sounds of gunfire, rockets, energy weapons, and explosions. Inside that sphere, the sound of a single rock clattering down the mound echoed like an avalanche. The angel looked up, looked into Vicky's eyes, into her soul, saw everything. Vicky felt it. Every mistake and fear, every fault and hope, every secret, the smallest memory was all laid bare in one white-hot instant. There was a flash of unbearable pain across the angel's face. It was there for only an instant, and then it was gone again, leaving no trace behind. Or was there? One tear slid down the perfect cheek across the serene and glorious, unhuman face. The angel opened her lips. Run, she said. One word that filled Vicky's ears and heart and soul and left no room for anything else. Her body reacted while her mind still reeled, stunned. She ran. She did not stop running until she reached Coldwater Apartments, somehow untouched, her apartment as she had left it, where she snatched up Gray and locked them both in the closet. She shook and cried and curled into a fetal ball and did not come out again until the last of the noise of combat was over and the night was heavy with cordite and smoke and utter, utter silence. Wait is over. The first book of Steve Livy's Aquapura trilogy is available now from Subatomic Books. Meet Crixisoran, a plumber on an epic odyssey of redemption through an ancient world. Want to try before you buy? Listen to the free audiobook or download the free ebook or subscribe to a chapter a day through your email. Log on to www.aquapuratrilogy.com for more information. is hiring. Log on to www.echometahumans.com and join the Echo Mock Street team. Your mission? Spread the word about the Secret World Chronicle.